city. 2001, Stoke was voted uh, in one of those surveys. I think it was, well, it doesn't matter who it was. Stoke was voted as the worst place in the United Kingdom to live. And that's like a curse, isn't it? And the church, some church leaders came together and they said, that's happened on our watch. That's happened on our watch. And so they began to meet together to pray and to intercede. Actually, initially to confess and say to God, look, surely this is not your intention for Stoke-on-Trent. We're here together. What do you want us to do? And uh, all over the country, that's happening in different places. A real sense of God bringing churches together, actually not for the old agenda of kind of one institutional church, but actually together for the mission of God. And I find it fascinating that actually, we've not hit this yet, but our numbers, our demographics, I mean, in this country, the church has been in decline for over 100 years. Nothing new in that. The difference now is our age profile, our demographics. And in the next decade or so, our numbers will literally fall off the end of a cliff. There will be whole areas of Shropshire, unless something dramatic happens, there'll be whole areas of Shropshire where there will be no worshiping community. And I find it fascinating that with that backdrop, our vision has never been bigger as the church. Because actually our vision is Ephesians chapter 1. I see this time and time again. Our vision is the transformation of all things. Amen? Amen. The transformation of all things. The transformation of the education sector. The transformation of the justice sector. The transformation of the health service. The transformation of all things. Because what's the big plan? What's God's big plan? God's big plan is to bring all things under Christ. Yeah? Yeah. Everything under Jesus. Where all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, atoms, animals, everything, get brought together, get fixed, and find their place in Jesus. And it's my pleasure to try and kind of work towards that a bit every day. Right, we better move on to the sermon, haven't we? So I must confess to you, my heart sank slightly when I realized I'd got Nicodemus. Because my heart, my mind immediately went to John chapter 3 and I kind of thought, I'm not sure I want to preach on you must be born again. And I'm not sure, vital as it is, I'm not sure they want to hear that again. And then I realized, because I'm a bit slow on the uptake, I realized the genius of the preaching series. It's about Nicodemus, you idiot. It's not about what Jesus says to him so much. It's about his response to that. And on first reading, we've heard the passages that mention Nicodemus read to us. On first reading, Nicodemus can seem a bit of a bit player in the grand sweep of John's gospel. But actually, the way John writes, John says to us, this man is significant. And he says it in two ways. First of all, Nicodemus appears three times. Now, if you know anything about the writing of John, John loves numbers, and three is a significant number. So already he's saying to it, hey, this is a significant man. And the other thing, as quite clearly came out in the readings, Nicodemus appears at really strategic moments in the life and ministry of Jesus. So he's there at the beginning. He's not kind of like Jesus' stooge in the conversation. He's an active part in the conversation that, that brings out these crucial issues with Jesus. Then he appears in John 7, as we heard, 
as controversy begins to build. And Nicodemus is a different voice speaking into the situation. And then he appears at the third time after the death of Jesus, before resurrection. And again, he has a vital role. Because imagine this. Imagine if Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus hadn't come forward, what would have happened to the body of Jesus? The body of Jesus would have been thrown into the common pit where condemned criminals went. That would have made resurrection a bit interesting, wouldn't it? It's one of those might have beens in the Bible, but because these two guys come forward, then actually our resurrection story of the stone and all that is so much more powerful. And what we see through these events is we see a transformation in Nicodemus. We see Nicodemus uh, growing in his understanding of who Jesus is, but also in his journey in following Jesus. Nicodemus becomes and continues to grow as a disciple. And I love the simple definition that's going to come up on the screen, I think. Uh, Andrew Roberts in his book, Holy Habits. Um, sorry, we need to go, yeah, the next one after that. I love this very simple definition. One who learns as they follow. Brackets Jesus. <laughs> One who learns as they follow. So what do we learn from Nicodemus that is going to help us in our following? I was really fortunate to grow up in a great church like this. Uh, a great church that had a wonderful youth work. And uh, one of the key leaders was a very straightforward working class Leicester man. You knew where you stood with this bloke. He was very straightforward, but he loved Jesus. A number of years later, I discovered um, that he'd become an elder in this church. And I must confess, my initial thought was, really? They must be struggling a bit. He's become an elder. And then, by chance, by circumstances, I met this guy again. <clears throat> he was at my parents' house. We had coffee. Uh, and it was great to catch up on old times. And I had to repent. Because, boy, had this man grown. Had he changed as a disciple of Jesus over the years? And who was I to assume he hadn't? But the important thing is this. That actually, as we talked, what I discovered was this. He had taken great care over his journey. He had taken responsibility for his growth in God. So what do we learn from Nicodemus that can keep us growing? Thank you. First one is this. And it's really convenient, three passages, three points. That's dead easy, isn't it? Standard Baptist sermon, great. There's something about Nicodemus, okay? He has this right attitude of mind. He ha Somehow Nicodemus is an ongoing learner. And we need to cultivate that same attitude so that we're ongoing learners. You see, it's clear from the accounts that Nicodemus had made it. Jesus describes him as a respected Jewish teacher. Actually, Jesus uses a very emphatic phrase. He says to Nicodemus, are you not Israel's teacher? Are you not the teacher? It's a really emphatic phrase. He's also a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, the ruling Jewish council. So Nicodemus is a well-respected, significant member of the, Jewish, of the Jerusalem establishment. He's an established, significant member of the Jerusalem establishment. He's arrived. He's got there. And the temptation in such a position is to make sure you maintain it, isn't it? 
You've climbed to the top of the greasy pole. It's a long way down. There are sharks circling who would like to take your place. So surely you defend your position, don't you? Don't show weakness or vulnerability. You need to present this facade of knowing and understanding everything. You kind of like, you kind of become the classic swan, don't you? Whereas above everything is serene and in control and underneath, the legs are going like mad. And actually the gospel suggests that most of Nicodemus' contemporaries were just like that. The facade was everything. That's not Nicodemus. In chapter 3, verse 4, as Jesus says this thing about you must be born again, Nicodemus exclaims, what do you mean? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? He has an inquiring mind. And it goes on, doesn't it, in verse 9. How are these things possible, Nicodemus asks. And there also is a suggestion in the way that Nicodemus asks the questions. He's not asking for general information. He's actually asking, how does this apply to me? So he probably was an old man. Because you would need to be an older man to be in the position he was in. He says, how can an old man, in other words, how can I? How can this work for me? How does this unpack for me? Nicodemus is unafraid to show ignorance and amazement. He's unafraid to show ignorance and amazement. There were various things that irritated me when I was a local Baptist minister. Uh, and I'll confess one of them to you. It used to really irritate me. And I'm sorry if you're one of these people. <laughs> Where's the back door, Graham? That way, oh no. It's a really irritating moment when people used to say, what we need is more teaching. It used to appear in various forms. What we need is deeper teaching. What we need is this, what we need is that. What we need is, actually what I've been convinced of over the years is what we need is more learning. Because actually some of us are constipated. Yeah, somebody coughed. I will say it. Some of us are constipated. Jackie Pullinger said, the problem with Christians in the West is once they understand something, they think they've done it. Sadly true, isn't it? And I'm not accusing you, I'm speaking to my own heart. What we need is more learning, that is taking truth and asking the question, well, how does this work in my life? And then living it. And then when we've done that, let's move on to the next bit of teaching. Because if we don't apply it, and for that to happen, we need to cultivate a Nicodemus mindset. We need to cultivate open minds. We need to recognize, I don't get it yet. And I am not there yet. It is not the old thing, is it, of getting my ticket for heaven and then waiting in a queue. It's about ongoing transformation in our lives. About becoming more and more and more like Jesus. I love the other definition of discipleship. I'm going off piste now, so I need to try and remember it. It's this. Um, which is, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he was you. Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he was you. The opposite of this open mind is fear, actually. The fear of being seen as. The fear of looking. Nicodemus wasn't worried about that. We don't need to be afraid of looking like a child because Jesus said, next one, thank you. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter 
the kingdom of heaven. Thank you. Next one. Have you noticed? Yeah, sorry, next one. So we get them back. That's it. Have you noticed? Those are parallel statements, aren't they? Which one have we emphasized most? hear a lot of talk, quite rightly, I'm not dissing it. I'm trying to get you to open your minds. We've made a lot about you must be born again, quite rightly. And we hear a lot about born again Christians. We hear less about little child Christians. And yet they're parallel statements, aren't they? And actually, go and read the Gospels. Jesus says a lot about, actually, this is... This is how you enter the kingdom of God. And this is how you can be kept out of the kingdom of God. But we've just emphasized the one. Now some of you, I'm going to take a risk now. Some of you, you're getting a bit... Because you must be born again. Well, is that saying something about your mind? Are we cultivating this as followers of Jesus? Next picture, thank you. Children love asking questions, don't they? We've got two granddaughters. Actually, the great question that we get when we walk straight in is, Nana, Grandpa, will you play with me? And the answer is always yes. Regret it afterwards, always yes. But are we cultivating this kind of question asking in our lives? Or do we think we've got there? Do we only listen to the people who tell us what we already believe? Yeah, we need reminding of the essentials. But next picture. The danger is that we become bonsai Christians. How do you create a bonsai? You restrict the roots. Our roots are in Jesus. Jesus is infinite. He goes on forever. There's plenty of room for growth. And one of the ways we grow is by cultivating this Nicodemus mindset of this open, inquiring mind of asking questions like a child would. Second thing, thank you, next slide. And this is a quick one, but it is significant for some of us. See, the thing about Nicodemus was, and we see this in the second incident, is that he manages, he doesn't get transfixed by the one thing, but he keeps in mind the big picture, if you like. And John 7 also gives us a fascinating growth into the insight, into the growth that Nicodemus is experiencing. But the issue that's vexing the religious authorities, amongst whom is Nicodemus, is that Jesus worked on the Sabbath. To their mind, he's broken one of the commandments. The reality is he hasn't. And the tragedy is of Judaism that they so respected that commandment that they built around it what they called a hedge of laws and rules so that you would never get close to breaking the commandment. The tragedy was the rules became more important than the commandment. Nicodemus, his point appears to be this. Well, wait a minute, he says. You're accusing him of breaking the law, but your actions are also breaking the law. You see... The Pharisees have become fixated on one thing, the Sabbath. They appear to be judging everything through this one lens. They fail to see the extraordinary things that are happening around them through Jesus because they just view everything 
through this one thing. Whereas Nicodemus, Nicodemus is able to step back and see the breadth of the situation. And it's a huge danger for some followers of Jesus who become fixated on one thing. Some disciples seem to be obsessed with one truth. Yes, it's true, but it's not the whole truth. It can be a particular ministry, a particular person. They're good things. But if we're not careful, we end up, it's like we're looking down the wrong end of the telescope. This can be true in every flavor of the church, charismatic to Catholic. We need to keep returning to the broad sweep of what God has done. And the one thing needs to be seen in the context of the broad sweep of who God is and what he's doing. It's another way of hindering our growth when we just focus on one thing, when there is so much more that God offers to us. And then we get this final account in uh, John chapter 19. Thank you, the third one. There we go. In this final account, Nicodemus nails his colors to the mast. John 12 tells us that there were other leaders, other Jewish leaders, other religious leaders who did believe in Jesus, but they never went public because the cost was too much. And what Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus do is a very public act. Word of this would have got around. Joseph of Arimathea is described as a disciple of Jesus, and so Nicodemus associates with a known with this disciple of Jesus, and also with the condemned and discredited Jesus of Nazareth. And the other interesting thing is the sheer amount of spice that Nicodemus brings. Now, our reading told us what that was in kilograms. I don't know about you, but that means nothing to me. I'm a man of a certain age, so. For others of you of a certain age, let me tell you, Nicodemus brings nearly five and a half stones. I don't mean round things for younger people. I mean, wait, five and a half stones of spices. That's the weight of quite a large dog, isn't it? That's the amount that you would bring to embalm the body of royalty. Nobody else notices, probably, but Nicodemus is making a statement with this broken body of a condemned criminal. I see you as royalty. Growing as disciples, if we are going to grow on, go on growing as disciples, it will require faith and courage. Because just like Nicodemus, I mean, all his hopes had died with Jesus, literally. They had been nailed to the cross and they'd gone. And yet, in, that in those circumstances, in that situation, then Nicodemus shows faith and courage. And we need that because there will be times in our lives, won't there, when we will face the same. It might be illness, it might be unemployment, it might be the breakdown of a relationship, it can be all kinds of other things. I don't know why, but I was struck this morning as I was praying and I was working my way through the list of people I pray for every day. It suddenly occurred to me how many of those people are either in pain or have experienced pain in their lives. 
We are not immune from these things, are we? Are we? We're not. How has somebody put it? We are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. We are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. And Nicodemus is literally living in that, isn't he? How do we face? How do we respond to times like that? How in moments like that can we keep on growing as disciples of Jesus? Because my observation is that for some people, and I'm not being critical, they have my utmost sympathy. Some people at this point, when things go wrong, they just give up, don't they? And I don't criticize anybody for that. But that's what sometimes happens. My temptation is slightly, I don't give up, but I kind of go sometimes into a kind of hibernation or vegetative state. I'd, well, my wife would tell you I'm like that most of the time, but that's another story. But I kind of, I almost withdraw and wait for it to go away and then re-engage with faith. Have you ever done that? Now, there's always a process to be worked through, isn't there? But see, Nicodemus doesn't do that, does he? Nicodemus faces it and he embraces it. Nicodemus faces it and he embraces it. He didn't hide away and he didn't give up. There would have been a whole load of things he didn't understand. But maybe his open inquiring mind knew there are some things you don't get answers to. He faced it, he embraced it, he lived in it. And then came resurrection. Now often for us, resurrection doesn't come three days later, does it? And actually the reality is some of us, resurrection only comes at the end of our lives. But isn't that good enough? Because what comes after resurrection? Eternal, everlasting life. It's not bad, is it? You know, in a billion years, we'll have only scratched the surface of the goodness of God. And there's a billion, 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 billion yet more to come. Resurrection's not bad, actually, is it? It's our inheritance, and it's coming. But you see, Nicodemus, when it felt like all hope had literally was dead, he faces it, he embraces it. And uh, it was the faith of Habakkuk. Thank you. Let's... See these verses from Habakkuk. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls. I mean, you can't get much worse than that, can you? Yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Nicodemus chooses to trust God. He chooses to do the right thing. He chooses in faith to live through it and see what God will do. He chooses in faith to live through it with God and see what God will do. That's the kind of faith that God notices. That's the kind of faith that God responds to. And there's another sermon that I've probably got somewhere in my back pocket that I'm not going to use. But there is another sermon about the good that God does 
in us and through us when we face hardship like that. Because God uses that to do extraordinary things in the depths of our hearts. But that's another sermon. So in summary, thank you. John says to us through his gospel, take note of Nicodemus. Take note of Nicodemus. And if we are going to go on growing as disciples of Jesus, then there are three things that we learn from Nicodemus. First of all, there's this thing about cultivating an inquiring childlike mind that is unafraid. Cultivating that childlike mind that is unafraid. Secondly, there's this thing where he does not get captivated by the one thing, but he bears in mind the broad sweep of who God is and what God has done, and he finds different things. He allows different things to find their place in this broad sweep. And the third thing is, He takes courage and he lives by faith when it seems like everything is dead. Which one of those three do you need to give attention to? Just where you are in life at the moment, which one of those three do you need to give attention to? Where is the growing and learning needed? Let's just take a moment to allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. And this is not accusatory, because remember, Jesus comes, and what does he bring? Life. It's good news, isn't it? It's good news. So which of these three is the one that Jesus is saying to you this morning? Let's do a bit of work on this. Thank you, loving God, that you are for us. You are not against us. Thank you that you are so for us that Jesus came. Thank you for the cosmos transforming work of the cross of resurrection and ascension. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who lives with us. And we pray that you would help us as followers of you, Lord Jesus, to learn as we follow. May, by your grace, you enable us, enable us to keep walking with you, Lord, we pray. And I pray specifically, Lord, this morning for anybody here or anyone we know who is in that really hard place. Spirit of God, would you arise in their hearts and would you grow faith and hope and courage in Jesus' name. Amen.